Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. I really am so excited that you've decided to join us for this service. You know, people come to church or watch a church service online for lots of reasons. I don't know why you decided to join us today, but here's something I do know. God is at work in your life, and He's brought you here to this place in this moment to accomplish His purposes. Since people grow here, you will leave changed. I trust His work in your life. So can you. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. We have a fantastic team who work tirelessly to help people grow. We love helping you discover the best path forward to deepening your spiritual roots, whether you are here in the room or watching online, live or on demand at some point in the future. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that we are a come-as-you-are kind of church. We don't have any perfect people here. We are all in process, working through our junk, and sometimes that is a messy process. So if you can embrace our mess, we'll embrace yours, and together we'll let God work to clean it all up. And if you're just checking out Jesus and church, this is a safe place to bring your questions and doubts. We're all on a journey. And wherever you are on your journey, welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now... Let's join our service. You know, I recently turned 60 years old. I know I don't look a day over 59. (laughs) But as we know, with birthdays, Come changes, many, many changes. For instance, you know, I used to be cold all the time, and now I go from cold to overheated in a matter of seconds. And I'm not as physically strong as I used to be. I I really feel it when I'm, you know, I'm lifting a piece of furniture or a heavy box. It's just so much more difficult. And then there's the realization that jumping on the trampoline with a full bladder is no longer a good idea. (laughs) One thing that really frustrates me is my vision degrading so quickly. Um, I I can't see the alarm clock across my bedroom without my glasses now. Uh, Yes, I still have a digital alarm clock in the room, and we don't use it for the alarm. It's just so that I can see what time it is when I can't sleep in the middle of the night. Um, But of course, I need my glasses now to see, so there's that. Sleeping habits, that's another change. Um, But the eye thing, I really don't like blurry vision. I really don't like blurry vision. And and I have to accept the fact that my vision is not 2020 anymore. And I have to admit that like my physical vision, my spiritual vision isn't always 2020 either. And I think 
That's true for most of us. We tend to focus our eyes on things other than Jesus. Or we see Jesus through a cultural lens or a fear-based lens or even the lens of just plain selfishness, a me focus. And another thing I've noticed that's declining is my hearing. I need to I need that volume to be up a little bit louder than I used to. Or I don't quite catch a word when I'm talking with someone. And like my vision, this applies to both my physical and my spiritual hearing. Uh, I notice that maybe the volume needs to be turned up, or I don't quite catch the word that God is trying to tell me. Physical hearing loss often can't be corrected. Hearing aids help, but the damage has been done. Spiritual hearing, on the other hand, is usually a case of selective hearing. Uh, Maybe I'm not paying attention or I don't want to hear that. I think you all know what I mean. So today we're going to look at spiritual vision from the perspectives of a blind man, Jesus, and a handful of others in John 9. Then we'll consider our spiritual hearing as we look at Jesus the Good Shepherd in John 10. Perhaps some fresh perspective will help us grow in our ability to both see and hear spiritually. So if if you are joining us for the first time today, we've been working our way through the book of John, the gospel of John, and we've unpacked a lot of great truth each week and have already covered much of the background information that would be helpful to you. So I would encourage you to go to our website and watch or listen to the previous messages in this series. Um, But before we dive in, let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, open our eyes and our ears to you. Help us to see you with clear vision, who you are and who we are in relationship to you. Help us to hear your direction and your word that we may draw nearer to you, our Creator that we may accurately then be hands and feet of Jesus to those who need you so desperately. So God, be in us today. In Jesus' name we pray. So let's set the stage with John chapter nine. So you can turn there in your Bible or in your app And let's set the stage with verse 1. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Jesus and his disciples were walking along, and somehow they know that this man has been blind from birth. Now, On the surface, their question seems logical. Why? I mean, don't we all ask that question? Why, God? 
Why me? Why this? Why now? Why did you let this happen? Now notice that their why question already includes possible answers, like us, again. You know, they don't ask an open-ended why. They ask which of the two possibilities is the reason for the man's blindness. They assume that sin is the cause the sin of the parents or the sin of the blind man, having grown up in this religious culture saturated with legalism, they automatically respond with a legalistic perspective. The blindness in their view was punishment for sin. If he or his parents had not sinned in some way, he would not be blind. So when the disciples look at this man, they have no mercy filter. They bypass mercy and they head straight to theology. And that's what legalism does. Legalism focuses on theology, knowledge, and following the rules. There's no room for Jesus' mercy and grace and what that looks like in the lives of people, sinners like us. Yes, theology is important, but the mercy of Jesus is the main point. It is the focus of biblical theology. Biblical theology points to Jesus and his grace and his mercy. And we often ask those same why questions, maybe not out loud, but we think them in our minds or in our hearts, and we wonder, what did she do to deserve this? Or what did I do to deserve this? We have this idea in our minds that good, that this idea that, that says good will produce good and bad will bring about bad. But from a big picture view, all disabilities, disease, dysfunction, and death are all a result of original sin or what we call the fall. In the book of Genesis, we learn that Adam and Eve decided to step outside the will of God in the Garden of Eden. And though that choice to disobey, and through that choice to disobey, sin was introduced and has infiltrated every aspect of our world. It is no longer the perfect place that God created it to be. Let's continue in verse 3. It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. This question of sin and disability has a very complicated answer. It involves two very distinct issues, consequences and divine punishment. Now, we often combine these two issues, um, though God is definitely involved in both, they are not the same. We all have free will, which means God usually allows us to make our own choices. 
and he guides and directs us in the right path, but we like to take our own path on occasion, and we like to make our own choices. And when we are out of alignment with God in those choices and behaviors, we often reap the consequences. Now, when I lie, I destroy relationships. Uh, when I steal, I get arrested. You, you get the picture. Divine punishment is not the same as receiving consequences for our actions. Divine punishment is a very real product of sin that is severe, it is forever, and it is directly from God himself. Now, fortunately, this punishment has been delayed until either our physical death or the end of the world, whichever comes first for us as individuals. We are currently living in a grace period given by God, where we have an opportunity to avoid divine punishment with one single choice. Divine punishment is something we all deserve. We deserve it because we sin. It results in eternal separation from God, forever, never to change. It is eternal life in hell. It is what the Bible describes as a place of torment. The amazing and beautiful thing is that God the Father has made a way for us to avoid divine punishment. It is this grace period, there's an opportunity for anyone, anyone, to come to God through his Son, Jesus Christ, and, and ask for forgiveness. We receive forgiveness when we believe that Jesus can and will save us because he is God in the flesh. The one who took our punishment for sin for every wrong thing we have ever done or will ever do, and he made a way for us to have a different eternity, a different eternity. Not the one that we deserve, but one of love and of grace and mercy in heaven. An eternal, loving relationship with God the Father with Jesus. If, however, you choose to trust in your own goodness or hope that somehow your good will outweigh your bad, well, I have to call it what it is. It is rejecting God and the free gift he offers to save you. And if that's the case, then you will eventually and eternally experience his divine punishment. So, back to the disciples' question. Jesus' answer was that the man was born blind so that God's glory could be seen, and then he tells them that he, Jesus, is the light of the world, and he heals the blind man. 
It wasn't his sin or the sin of his parents. His pain was infused with divinely designed purpose. One commentary states it like this. The man was born blind so Jesus could teach the profound truth of spiritual blindness and reveal himself as the light of the world. Spiritual blindness is when we don't see Jesus for who he is. Spiritual blindness is when we don't see ourselves for who we are. We all have blind spots in our spiritual growth, and Jesus wants to reveal those blind spots to us so that we can grow up and be more like him and clear our spiritual vision. That's called spiritual growth. And we are all about spiritual growth here at Dayspring. In fact, if you are not interested in growing spiritually, this might not be the place for you because we grow here. So all this goes down on the Sabbath. And we know from previous weeks in our series that his healing on this, this healing on the Sabbath thing was really getting to all of the religious leaders, the Pharisees who were extreme legalists. It gets them all in an uproar. And according to them, healing would be considered work, which was prohibited on the Sabbath. They failed to see the spirit of the Sabbath, which was less about working and more about regularly scheduled time of worship and focus on the Lord. So in the legalistic sense, their focus was on the task Jesus performed. But from a spiritual perspective, the idea was to rest and to focus on God. Not working on the, the, not working on the Sabbath was about taking a day to refocus on the spiritual rather than the physical. It was less about work and more about worship. Now, of course, all the Pharisees can see that this, uh, that all that the Pharisees can see is that this, according to their legalistic law, Jesus had sinned. And they viewed this healing as sin because Jesus did it on the Sabbath. And since sinners can't heal, this healing thing wasn't from Jesus, but from God. I mean, keep in mind, they didn't know that Jesus was the, Jesus and the Father are one. Therefore, God healed the blind man and Jesus did not. And Jesus couldn't be God because he sinned by healing on the Sabbath and round and round they go, stuck in their own spiritual blindness. The Pharisees are trying desperately to discredit Jesus and disprove this miracle because if Jesus had in fact performed this miracle, the Pharisees would lose their moral superiority before the people. And come hell or high water, literally, they were not about to let that happen. So, they desperately attempt to discredit Jesus, first with the Sabbath thing. If Jesus healed on the Sabbath, he was a sinner, and sinners don't have healing powers. Next, they move to questioning the blind man about who he is. His answer is unsatisfactory, so they shift to plan B interrogating the man's parents in an attempt to prove that he was not, in fact, born blind at all. So mom and dad are very cautious in their answer because whatever they say will have serious consequences for them. 
If they support Jesus and his miracle, they will be excommunicated from the Jewish community. And this was not just getting kicked out of church. Culturally, no church meant no God. So they would also become spiritual outcasts. In their minds, they would be all alone, socially and spiritually. So this was a very tricky and potentially life-changing situation for them. Verse 18, the Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see, so they called his parents. They asked them, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? His parents replied, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself, and his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying that Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said, he's old enough, ask him. So there were two questions. First, is this your son? Which they answered yes. And second, if so, how does he now see? And this time they're evasive. They pass the buck, so to speak, and tell the Pharisees, don't know, ask him yourself. And out of fear, these parents were focused on what might happen to them. Their eyes weren't fixed on the truth of what Jesus had done and trusting in him. They avoid answering the question. Now, Pharisees don't seem to be achieving their goal. Uh, time for plan C. They call the man back in, not the man, but the blind man, and putting him under oath, they question him again on the situation. Verse 24. So for the second time, they call in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind, and now I can see. But what did he do, they ask? How did he heal you? Look, the man explained, I told you once. Didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they cursed him. You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses, and we know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man came from. You don't even know. <laughs> Why, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you do not know where he comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he could not have done it. You were born a total sinner, they answered. You are trying to teach us, and they threw him out of the synagogue. So the spiritual blindness here is obvious. The Pharisees just don't want to see Jesus for who he is. That would remove them from their position of power. They would have to submit themselves to the authority of Jesus, and after all the effort they are putting into disproving him, 
that would be beyond humiliating. So then Jesus asks the blind man, who can now see physically? He, Jesus asks him about his spiritual vision. When Jesus heard what happened, he found the man and asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man asked him, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, Are you saying we are blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied. But if you remain guilty because you claim you can see, but you remain guilty because you claim that you can see. Now, those who are spiritually blind don't think they're missing out on anything. Therefore, they don't even realize their need. Those who have clear spiritual vision recognize their need for salvation and continued spiritual growth. They are willing to dive into blind spots in their lives and allow Jesus to help them correct their course. We all, all need to have our spiritual eyes examined from time to time. Now, although this particular chapter focuses mainly on seeing Jesus for who he is for the first time, we call that accepting Christ or getting saved, but those of us who have already had a personal relationship with Christ also need to refocus and gain a wider, clearer perspective on God as he increasingly makes himself known to us. You know, which is clearer, one or two? One or two? Now, we can describe the disciples as nearsighted. I mean, they focused on the blind man as a theological example. And we could call the parents fear-sighted as they chose to focus on their fears instead of how wonderful it was that their son had been healed by God through Jesus. And we could say that the Pharisees had tunnel vision. I mean, they were stuck on their own knowledge and the goal of discrediting Jesus and could not see the truth of who Jesus really is. Now, I'm not sure where I heard this, but it's a quote. We are no longer teachable when we are no longer reachable. Let me say that again. We are no longer teachable when we're no longer reachable. We can be at great risk when pride begins to whisper into our hearts that we've got it made, we know it all. When there's no room in our mind for God to break through with new insight or truth because we think we already know. I mean, danger, Will Robinson. You know, the Bible has a pretty clear warning in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. And in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and haughtiness 
before a fall. So we have the nearsighted disciples, the fear-sighted parents, and the Pharisees with tunnel vision and the blind man, who, although he was blind physically, not only received his physical sight, also received his spiritual sight when he saw with his own eyes who Jesus really is. He was reachable because he was te- Oh, so lame. You have to say it loud enough so that the people online can hear you, right? So, he was reachable because he was? Reachable. Good Sunday school. Yes. <laughs> All right. So, seeing Jesus clearly is of utmost importance, as is hearing him. And I know that many of you struggle with physical hearing loss, and it is very, very challenging. But just like we can lose our physical or our spiritual vision, we can also lose both our physical and spiritual hearing. And John uses the imagery of the shepherd and his sheep to illustrate this next truth. Now, since the story of Jesus feeding the multitude in John 6, Jesus has been teaching about the truth of his identity. And his flock of followers have has begun to divide. Genuine believers followed Jesus while the rest rejected him. And you could say that believers who heard his voice and followed him while others turned a deaf ear to Jesus and his truth. In chapter 10, we see Jesus as the shepherd, and unfortunately, we're the sheep. Even the Old Testament calls us sheep. All have wandered away like sheep. Each of us of us has gone his own way, Isaiah 53, 6. But not only do we wander like sheep, we are like sheep in so many ways. And although they can be cute and fluffy, out of all God's animals, the sheep is the least able to take care of itself. Um, Sheep aren't real smart. I mean, have you ever met a sheep trainer? Have you ever seen sheep tricks? You know, anyone who's taught a sheep to roll over, or they also, they have no fangs or claws. They're defenseless. They can't bite you or outrun you. That's why you never see sheep as mascots. (laughs) I mean, you got the rams, you got the bulls, you got the tigers, but the New York lambs, come on. What's more, sheep are dirty. A a cat can clean itself, so can a dog, sort of. Birds use bird baths and bears use rivers, but sheep get dirty and they stay that way. Why isn't there a better metaphor for us than sheep? I mean, even healthy sheep can't take care of themselves. They need a shepherd for that. And thankfully, we do have one who takes care of us, doesn't make us do tricks for his affections, and protects us for all of eternity. He calls to us, come, come as you are, dirt and all. He's our shepherd, Jesus Christ. So let's turn to John chapter 10.
verse 1. I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. The metaphor of sheep and shepherd would have been a very would have been very familiar to the audience here. Um, flocks of sheep were one of the important sources of income for the Jewish people, and sheep provided wool and meat and milk. And because flocks of sheep were transportable, shepherding was an ideal occupation for Jews as they traveled in search of a permanent homeland. And there was significant income that came from the wool that would be shaved off or shorn um, from the sheep. So if one sheep was lost, it wasn't just one year's wool. It was the income from that animal for several years to come. So you can see why shepherds took good care of their sheep. Now, in our part of the world today, sheep are generally herded and pushed, driven from behind, and oftentimes with loud motorized vehicles. Uh, in Israel, sheep would be led and guided by an individual, the shepherd. The sheep would follow their shepherd. The shepherd would know the sheep individually, and they would know each of the sheep and would be able to easily recognize if one was missing. And they would have a special language of communication that was used to call the sheep to return or to follow in a specific direction. At night, the shepherd would gather the sheep in a, into a cave or another enclosure and then the sleep at the entrance of that enclosure to protect them from wolves or other animals or even thieves. And the shepherd became the gate or the doorway into the safety of the enclosure. If two flocks were sharing the same enclosure, each shepherd had their own language that the sheep recognized and would follow their shepherd. You can actually separate two combined flocks by the voice of the shepherd. They listen and they recognize the voice of their own shepherd and they disregard the other voice. Now, this metaphor is used to further explain who Jesus is. He's not just a miracle worker. He came to care for and save the lost. He came to protect and nurture the found. And those who are in the flock listen to the voice of Jesus. They do not listen to the voice of the world. The hearers in this situation are not understanding what Jesus is trying to say, and it isn't because they need physical hearing aids. They need spiritual hearing aids. Jesus explains again that he is the good shepherd, and he's also the gatekeeper. 
Jesus is the gate or the doorway to an eternal relationship with God. Anyone who wants to be a a part of God's people must enter through the gate, Jesus. They can't hop the fence or crawl under it. They've got to enter through the gate, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus further frustrates the Pharisees as he calls them thieves and robbers and explains how they will abandon the sheep when the going gets tough. And these words continue to divide the people. On one side, there are those who believe that Jesus is demon-possessed and raving mad. And on the other side, there are those who believe that he, in fact, is the Christ. Now, although we don't exactly know how much time passed between the healing of the blind man and this discourse, we do know that it is a consistent battle with the religious leaders who are continually trying to discredit Jesus. Jesus continues the battle, contrasting the shepherding practices of the Jewish leaders and himself. Where he is selfless, they are selfish. Where he would lay down his life for the sheep, they would do anything to save themselves. Where Jesus lives in complete submission and obedience to God, the Jewish leaders were obedient to their own lust for power, submitting to no one. So let's jump down to verse 22 in chapter 10. It was now winter. Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah, the festival of dedication. He was in the temple walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. The people surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Seriously? Even though Jesus has told them time and time again they are not seeing or hearing the truth about here, who he is, and why he came. Verse 25 continues. Jesus replied, I have all, I'm sure he didn't say it like this. This is how I would say it. I've already told you. I'm sure he was much more loving and compassionate. Jesus replied, I have already told you and you don't believe me. The proof is in the work I do in my Father's name. But you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me for my Father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Now, Jesus reminds them that the, the proof is in the pudding. Um, Jesus has done miracles. The miracles that Jesus has performed should be proof enough. But they're blind and deaf to Jesus because they are not his sheep. They do not believe in Jesus as the Savior. They see Jesus as a man who made himself God, when in fact he is God who made himself a man. From our human perspective, we become a sheep, part of God's flock, by believing in Jesus. But when we look at the divine perspective, we become sheep because we are chosen by God. And this is a profound mystery. 
that God chose us, therefore we chose him, is the spiritual version of which came first, the chicken or the egg. Warren Wearsby writes, the lost sinner who hears God's words word knows nothing about divine election. He hears only that Christ died for the sins of the world and that he may receive the gift of eternal life by trusting the Savior. When he trusts the Savior, he becomes a member of God's family and a sheep in the flock. Then he learns that he was chosen in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. It's one of those things that we just get to accept and rejoice and have faith in him and his truth to fill in the gap of our intellect. We see in in Ephesians 1-4, even before he made the world, God loved and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. In the Bible, we read that divine election and human responsibility are perfectly joined in balance. It's one of those things that I will never fully understand, but I don't need to. I can trust that I have the place, I placed my faith in Jesus Christ and that he will work out the rest. That's why it's called faith. I don't always understand or know the answer, but I can rest in the fact that he does. I can also rest in the fact that once I submit my life to Jesus, I'm secure in his hand, in the hand of God forever. Now, remember we talked about divine punishment a little earlier, and here's where that comes into play. Divine punishment comes into play when I am not one of God's sheep. When I am one of God's sheep, I'm given a gift that can never be earned. I will never be separated from God, and I will have access to his presence forever. Verse 28 supports what theologians call eternal security, the theological view that once you have been saved, you are always saved. And with this concept comes a common question. If I can't lose my salvation then can't I sin as much as I want? Doesn't this kind of give me a license to sin? The answer is... Eternal security um, is not a license to sin. One article states it this way. Eternal security is not a license to sin. Rather, it is the security of knowing that God's love is guaranteed for those who trust in Christ. Knowing and understanding God's tremendous gift of salvation accomplishes the opposite of giving a license to sin. How could anyone, knowing the price that Jesus Christ paid for us, go on to live a life of sin. We see that in Romans 6. How could anyone who understands God's unconditional and guaranteed love for those who believe take that love and throw it back in his face? Such a person is demonstrating not that eternal security has been given him a license to sin, but that rather he or she has not truly experienced salvation through Christ. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning, and no one who continues to sin either has seen him or knows him. Now, this, of course, does not mean that as believers we never sin. We are not perfect, and um, 
We won't be until we see Jesus face to face. This keep on sinning referred to here is when someone chooses to continue in a pattern of sin, rejecting God's way. This behavior brings into question whether this person has, in fact, surrendered their life to Jesus. Are they truly one of the sheep in God's flock? Now, God's Word tells us that when we surrender our will to Jesus, we start the process of becoming more like Him. And that means a continued growth process toward His will, His ways. Only God knows a person's heart, and we cannot assume whether they have a relationship with Jesus or not. We are not the judge and the jury as much as we like to be. Jesus is the judge and the jury. Our job is to show love and grace and to be Jesus with skin on to everyone and to leave the judgment to the judge. All right, let's bring this thing home. Verse 31. Once again, people picked up stones to kill him. Jesus said, at my Father's direction, I have done many good works. For which one? Are you going to stone me? They replied, We're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You are a mere man, claimed to be God. Jesus replied, It is written in your own scripture that God said to certain leaders of the people, I say you are God's, notice the little g, and you know that scriptures cannot be altered. So if those people who received God's message were called God's, why do you call it blasphemy when I say I am the Son of God? After all, the Father set me apart and sent me into the world. Don't believe me unless I carry out my Father's work. But if I do His work, believe in the evidence of the miraculous works I have done, even if you don't believe me. Then you will know and understand that the Father is in me. I am the Father. John, um, John was first baptizing in Once again, they tried to arrest him, but got away and left them. He went beyond the Jordan near the place where John was first baptizing and stayed there a while. That'd be John the Baptist. And many followed him. John didn't perform miraculous signs, they remarked to one another, but everything he said about this man has come true. And many who were there believed in Jesus. The Jews realized Jesus that Jesus, in saying, I and the, fa and the Father are one, was claiming deity. Since the Jews took up stones again to stone him, they were demonstrating clearly that they did not believe his claim and that they, by their action, declared that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. Now, verses 34 and 35 might be confusing to us, but the Jewish people would have understood them. Now, Psalm 82 is really helpful here. So, this is your homework. Write it down, Psalm 82. There's a lot of psalms, so write down 82. Uh, that's your homework. So, for the gods with a small g, uh, they were been given authority to judge God's people. Now, some countries have kings or queens by their divine decree. Others have lords who were accepted as representatives of God and have authority. Jesus was comparing himself to these judges and said, in effect, you accept them as gods, you know, little g gods. Why can't you accept me as the son of big g God? My works 
prove my words. Now the spiritual blindness and deafness were such that they picked up stones to kill Jesus. And Jesus boldly and plainly states that he is the Son of God. The blind and the deaf continue to be blind and deaf as they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Give us a sign. He did. Give us a miracle. He did. Give us healing. He did. And still, they do not believe. God gave them a plain answer as to who he was. I am the Son of God. And they still did not believe him. Now, as in other areas of the Bible, Jesus leaves those who do not believe in him and moves to a location where people do see and hear him for who he is. Did you get that? Jesus moved on from those who chose not to see or hear him and went to those who did choose to see and hear him. Now, we tend to think that we have all the time in the world to get our spiritual glasses dialed in and our spiritual hearing tuned up. We don't. We don't. Today, today is the day. Today is the day to see and hear Jesus for the first time. Today is the day to be teachable and reachable so that we can help others find them, find Jesus in their darkness. Our good shepherd, love himself, stood before the people who were taking up stones to end his life, and he had reached out to them and pleaded with them again and again to acknowledge who he was and to come to him the good shepherd, then they would find life, not death, safety and security, not destruction. Yet their response was to stone him. There is always a response, one way or the other, to Jesus. As long as we're able to hear, he calls us to come to him. Love's voice is in our ears until we either plug plug them so tightly we cannot hear, or death terminates our hearing. Even if we have chosen to hate him, love continues to call. We only hurt ourselves when we refuse to come to him. And it's hard to understand, but some will refuse the life that Jesus offers even though it means their own destruction. However, our passage ends with an encouraging note. Jesus leaves crossing the Jordan River to the place where John the Baptist had baptized, and many came to Jesus there and believed in him. What about you? Do you see Jesus for who he really is? Have you believed in him? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you humbly asking for forgiveness for our blurred vision and our plugged ears. Because spiritual vision and spiritual hearing is a choice on our part when we choose not to 
draw closer to you, to be in relationship with you, to allow you to reach us and teach us. So God, I ask that this week, for each person who's listening, for every person who hears today, you would show them. Where are we not listening? Where are we not seeing? And I pray that we have the courage and the boldness to hold our arms open wide with our eyes fixed on you and say, I'm going to change that. Thank you for being our good shepherd. Thank you for your love and your grace and your caring that you provided a way to live in eternity with our, our Heavenly Father through you only, Lord. So if there's someone here that hasn't taken that first step, I, God, speak to them. You always meet us where we're at. That's one of your promises. Meet us where we're at. And if you want to talk to someone about that relationship, see me. God, we thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. And all the people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions alone or with others will help the truth of God's Word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of people like you, people who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring. Your financial generosity is proof of God's work in your life. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you're on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week, may you experience God's favor and blessing in your life.